Welcome to the Turd Nerds. We are the functional gastroenterology podcast discussing all things poop. Before we take the plunge into today's episode, let us tell you a bit about ourselves. I'm Dr. Rebecca Sand, a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist, and I specialize in all things gastroenterology, hormones, and fertility. I'm Dr. Ami Kapadia, and I'm a medical doctor trained in family medicine and functional medicine with a special interest in gastrointestinal health, food and environmental allergies, and autoimmune disease. And I'm Dr. Alana Gurvich, a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist who is board certified in naturopathic gastroenterology. I specialize in inflammatory bowel disease, IBS, and other functional digestive disorders. Let's jump into today's episode. The following discussion is for educational purposes only and not intended to diagnose or treat any diseases or conditions. Please consult your doctor before incorporating any of this information into your care. The information presented on this podcast is not medical advice. Okay, everyone, welcome back. Dr. Kapadia is presenting today um, on IBS, an atopic disease. And she's already blown my mind with this title because I would have thought <laughs> we were going to talk about CIFO again, but we're not. So I do other things, Rebecca. Amazing. What? I'm okay. so impressed. I'm broadening my horizons. Now, so first I want to ask you, what do you think of with atopic disease? Like, do you have any idea Allergies. what I'm talking about? Right. Uh, uh, what's dermatitis? Post-nasal yep. drip. You got almost all. So we generally think about atopic dermatitis, allergic rhinitis, asthma, kind of all in the subset of atopic diseases, right? Rashes. Rashes. Yep. In general. So what we're going to talk about is, you know, it seems like a lot of patients with digestive issues overlap with having atopic issues as well and vice versa. And so I wanted to sort of introduce this topic that I've been um, reading more about in some in some of the articles I read. They're calling it atopic bowel, where there's this sort of like irritation of the gut from allergens as well, whether it's inhalant or food sensitivities. And so I know we just started talking about food sensitivities, but not a lot of people think about this potential overlap between inhalant allergens and gut symptoms, right? Yeah. Because we think about breathing inhalant allergens, but we also swallow them. So you can have this overlap. Um, And so I wanted to talk about potential correlations with these two very common um, subsets of symptoms that we see in people. And so the first study I wanted to talk about, it was looking more at the role of food sensitivities in GI disorders. So in general, again, we're, we're looking at a- and correlating to atopic disease. So um, they looked at 71 patients, similar, our last study was 70 patients, so 71 patients, 66 of, 66 of them had IBS, 43 had some sort of atopic disease. And of those 43 with atopic disease, all of them were sensitized to inhalant allergies, right? So you know what I'm talking about when I say inhalant allergies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Environmental. Right. Give us a so, definition. Just so in case so we pollen, don't dust, dust mite, grass, mold, all of the things Pet you can inhale, here. pets, um, cockroach is in the mix. Ugh. But so yeah, you can become sensitized to a lot of inhalants. And so, so again, of all the, the atopic patients, all of them were sensitized to inhalants and a significant number of them were also sensitized to food allergens. And so in this study, looking at this group of patients with sort of a mix of IBS, atopic disease, or both, they looked at skin prick tests, they looked at blood testing of antigens, and symptom picture. Um, they looked at a couple lab markers as well. Um, and specifically, they looked at tryptase, which is an enzyme in mast cells. They looked at eosinophils, um, and they looked at IgE uh, in duodenal biopsies. 
And so what they found overall was that in the atopic patients, they had higher numbers of IgE uh, positive cells in duodenal mucosa. So, so what we're saying here is that these atopic patients had inhalant allergies, right? Mm -hmm. Some of them had food allergies, not all of them, but all of them had inhalant allergies. And of that group, they in general had 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 more IgE positive cells in their duodenal mucosa. So this potential link between like inhalant allergens and inflammation so in the gut. People who have allergies, sinus or whatever, right? We're finding evidence of those allergies in the gut, right? With IgG on IgE on biopsy. With IgE positive cells on duodenal mucosal okay. biopsies. Is it just me, or are we just finding a bunch more eosinophilia? It in seems patients? like it. It seems like just with the whole allergic phenomenon, we're seeing more everywhere. Yeah, in the rectum, in the duodenum. For we these did people. talk about yes. In yeah, the last study I, I mean, as well. I, I will tell you that maybe it comes down to the fact that I'm admitting it exists. Right. But I am seeing more atopy everywhere in my GI population. Right. So that's probably playing a role in a subset of them in their gut symptoms. So in addition to finding IgE positive cells more frequently in these atopic patients, they also found higher intestinal permeability. So again, how like, did they monitor it? Did you know? That's a good question. I, I have to look back to see if they did the lactulose mannitol or if they did a different um, assessment, but we can put the reference to the study. Um, they also found patients with GI symptoms that they attributed to food sensitivity in general had higher prevalences of IBS, of course, I mean, that makes sense, and higher prevalence of atopic disease. So in patients that thought they had food sensitivity, a good number of them had IBS and a good number of them also had atopic disease. So there's this, you know, correlation yeah. between... Did they separate between constipation, diarrhea? You guys are asking way too many questions. <laughs> you didn't You'll have to read the article. paper? <laughs> they, I don't think they did because it wasn't a focus just on IBS. It was kind of like looking at this relationship between inhalant allergens, at atopy, and gut symptoms, mm. not specifically like particular types of IBS. Yeah. Um, so overall, there was this elevated number of IgE cells in the duodenum, increased intestinal permeability in atopic individuals. Um, and overall, they found this sort of like connection between atopic disease and GI symptoms in a subset of patients, which they were calling this atopic bowel sort of issue. I mean, I'm just like sitting here and thinking about how many patients that I have that are atopic that I work up for SIBO, work up for SIFO, work up for, you know, large bowel, work up, work up, work up. And I'm like, oh, it's probably like an intestinal IgE. It could be to allergens. And then yeah. it's like, is it inhalant or food? And so I do refer a lot to a wonderful allergist in town because I just find so many of these patients have inhalant allergens that I think are affecting their gut, whether it's, we don't know all the mechanisms. Is it because of intestinal permeability? Is it because of inhalation of allergens? You know, there can be cross-reactivity with dust mites and certain food products. Like, I do there's think this I'm correlation. A chunk. Yeah. And so we'll talk about testing. You can start with a blood IgE inhalant panel, which I often do for our region, um, before sending them off to the allergist just to get some data. And in about 50% of people, that's been helpful. Um, in this study, they found that those who had self-reported food sensitivities linked to their ATP or GI symptoms. So guess the three most common self-reported food sensitivities. Gluten, dairy, and egg. Yep. Yay! So those are the most common ones. We They said wheat, but I mean, yeah. at this point, we usually do gluten. And hen's egg, they did specify. So I don't know oh, if duck egg would be different. Quail. Or, you know. So kind of Have over... Have you guys ever seen a uh, duck egg? 
I've yeah. eaten duck eggs. They're huge. They're huge. They are huge. They're massive. They taste really good too, usually. I feel like I just the... get so grossed out because they're so big. I mean, they are big, but... And you probably need one, like one duck egg. I don't eat them regularly family. enough to monitor. One per- the- Have you guys ever seen an ostrich egg? No. And I don't the, think they're I like the size of your head. I don't, would not want to eat one. An ostrich egg is the she size the of ostrich. your head. All right, moving on. So overall conclusions from this study, the prevalence of IBS-like symptoms is increased in patients with atopic disease compared to non-atopic patients. So again, this potential relationship between allergens, whether they're inhalant or food, digestive symptoms, and atopic disease. And adult patients with IBS who also have atopic disease may have increased intestinal permeability compared to IBS patients without atopic disease. So that's kind of like, okay, is it a subset of, is your patient sort of in this subset where they have IBS and atopy or not? Because not everyone with IBS has food and environmental allergies, right? So it's kind of a subset. Okay. Are we testing? Are we working these people up? Are we like, they come in with a GI presentation and then we immediately jump to a blood allergen panel. Okay. So why not just give them antihistamines? Does antihistamines make a difference? Well, I, I prefer to identify if I think they have atopic disease and usually we can tell from our history, right? So if they have a history of seasonal allergy, if they have allergic shiners, usually we can see that. Um, if they have symptoms that flare certain time of the certain times of the year with any of their respiratory, sometimes I've had patients that get gut symptoms more like during certain seasons totally. um and so because of this inhalant well, I, I think so yeah mold illness though you know yeast i don't like to talk too. about that anymore <laughs> but yes that's interesting because you spent years <laughs> i did not i that. did i deny it's been removed from okay. the internet interest doesn't exist because um, you literally have a class please okay it's been taken off my website <laughs> that's it? That's yes oh, for the purposes right. of this episode we are only focusing on gut gut fungus at this point. So um, yes, if you've had environmental allergy, that also can contribute to some of the gut symptoms. So so we're talking about, um, let's t- we'll talk about the workup here in a moment. So this overall association that we talked about, and ha- so how can we diagnose it? So in this particular study, um, they found they couldn't always document it based on skin prick or IgE tests, particularly for foods. I think for inhalants, it's more accurate. So I'll give you my go-to for food and inhalant testing. Um, so why don't we talk about that now, actually? So basically, I like to, I think, the, as we talked about in our last episode, elimination challenge really is the gold standard for food sensitivity. There's no other great way. We can do IgG testing Allergists can do skin testing, but even they've told me, like, it really depends on your clinical response. This but is not... how do you avoid allergens? Like Right. No, no. Allergens. I'm talking about food. Okay. So for food, my go-to is if they'll do it as an elimination challenge. Mm-hmm. Sometimes IgG food testing, knowing it's a very imperfect test. For inhalant allergens, I like to order, I think for us, it's called a Region 17 IgE inhalant panel through Quest Lab Core or any of our big systems. Wait, wait, say that one more time. The I, It's a... I, I believe we're region 17. You'll have to check. But okay. there's an IgE inhalant panel for each region of the country okay. that will test all of the inhalant allergens for through that region. Blood. Through How blood. How is it different from skin prick testing? Okay. So the IgE, what my, what my findings have been, it's been helpful in about half of my patients, meaning I think they have allergies and I'll get some hits of positives. The problem has been I seem to, there seems to be a subset of patients that don't make enough IgE antibody. So their total IgE will be like seven. Oh, wow. And so then you're not going to get any hits on that. And it doesn't rule out inhalant allergens. It just means we cannot use this test. Right. I've sent people to an out-of-town allergist because this patient was like driving down from Washington. 
and they said, don't worry about this low IgE. There's, you know, from all the research I could find, it can be linked to some recurrent respiratory URI illnesses, Whoa. but there was no pathologic condition they could link it to or follow up that they told my patient they needed. So for me, it's been, if I either find positives, great. We have some information. If I don't, and I still suspect allergies, I often will refer them to the allergist because I, skin prick testing is more accurate. Neither one is perfect, but skin prick testing, I think, is more accurate. It picks up more. It's more sensitive. Mm-hmm. I think it's more sensitive than blood testing. Um, and both of them can have false positives, you know, because you have to clinically correlate. And I was going to say something else that I totally forget um, about b- blood testing. It'll come to me and skin testing. Should we just spout off keywords? IgG... IG, it Both. wasn't IgG. It was IgE, <laughs> and it's not coming to me. Anyway, it'll come back. But um, so there's this issue with with not making enough IgE to make that test accurate. Uh, but but it has been helpful in sort of figuring so, out if this could okay. be a piece of their gut or a- atopy, which in atopy it often is, and gut it frequently is. So I'm just going back to way back when in season one, yeah. when we did our celiac episode and we were talking about how IG, total IgA was our like foundation marker to see if the rest like of the control. test was our control, mm-hmm. right? Right, is right. Is that the same here? Total IgE is in those panels. And that's I remembered what I was going to say. Okay, you um, go. Okay, so if someone has had allergy shots, they will not have an accurate IgE inhalant panel. So if they had Forever? allergy shots... I asked an allergist who was very senior, and I said, you know, my patient, I'm coming up with nothing, and I know she's got serious allergies. And I, I said, you know, she had allergy shots as a kid, and he's like, yeah, you can't, that's why you always want to get their first IgE inhalant panel they ever had done, like blood test before they ever had allergy shots. Oh. And I don't know the full, I can't explain the full mechanism of that. Do you but- understand how allergy shots work? Allergy shots, I can, we can talk about that, and I do think it's a very good therapy as far as, like, what can we offer patients that can actually fix the underlying immune dysfunction in conventional medicine. It's one of my favorite things. I wish I could do them, but I'm not an allergist. And so what I'm hearing from you is even if we have this population of atopic gastritis, right, basically, right, right. one of our treatment options should be allergy shots. Allergy workup mm-hmm. and discussion of allergy shots. It's a big commitment. Um, there's a few of us that do sublingual immunotherapy, which has pros and cons. It's under the tongue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's different opinions on that. I think allergy shots are a great tool. So I do frequently refer to our allergist. I think um, not everyone wants to do it. You have to go frequently. It's three to five years of shots. Yeah, it's a huge commitment. Do you think an allergist would be on board to do that if the only symptoms were IBS? The one I use is. <laughs> yeah, noted. Um, I think most allergists, I found allergists to actually be, like, um, I found a few great allergists that are are uh, open to working with Maybe patients with this paper. diffuse symptoms. And I think they often have some respiratory something. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think it probably does help at least for insurance purposes if you've got something, you know, even part of the year you've got nasal congestion, et cetera, because I don't know that it's approved just for the research is not on IBS Mm -hmm. and allergy shots. The research is on respiratory symptoms. Mm -hmm. Um, If you have a definitive test, though, 
Like if you have a disc, I think they have GI based symptoms and also respiratory. Symptoms, I think you need that's yeah, on a skin right with certain atopic issues. If they have asthma as well, definitely. I think there's a there's a p- potential for it and allergic vaginitis. There's also potentially. Mm. Oh, allergic. Vaginitis. I just I just referred a few patients specifically, and they did have quite a few inhalant allergens. There's a published paper on resolution of a, a vag- chronic vaginitis, which could be diagnosed as yeast vaginitis but it's the allergies that keep triggering the inflammation so if you have patients with that it may be also worth an allergy workup whether you start with an ige inhalant panel which i often do i mean it's a whole another topic but for for chronic vaginitis we definitely want to do all of the the infection workup right with 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 vaginal swabs but we also, I do frequently, if it's become a recurrent issue, I often find food sensitivities or inhalant allergens to be part of it. That is super interesting. Yeah. And you can do intravaginal chromalin. Oh, yeah. wow. As a trial. Yeah. Which is wow. pretty interesting. That is really interesting. They can make it compounded or you can use the vials and have them apply it topically just yeah. to see, like, yeah. does this help, you know? Wow. So, that is really interesting, actually. Yeah. So... Wow. The latest. Uh, it's not the latest. <laughs> I, mean, I read it like 20 years the, ago in the, a blog this is what when I'm I was say. researching a patient. I will say that chronic vaginitis is a huge complaint in a subset of it our patients. It does seem to be. That is like, it, it is no one so, knows what to do. And it's like so destructive. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, I'm thinking, you know, whenever we do these recordings, I'm always like, oh, bing, right, that right, patient. Right, right, right. Like, yeah. I need to think about this for that patient. So there's a great allergist. I remember when I was... Um, putting together a presentation on allergic stuff and I forget what else, Dr. Croker, and he had like a series, I think it was a, a, a publication or an article he wrote on this sort of allergic vaginitis phenomenon. I think he's retired now, but he was one of the pioneers for sublingual immunotherapy. And I believe that's what he used frequently to help desensitize these patients. So wow. if you have patients with chronic vaginitis, that's not responding to typical interventions. No one knows what to do, or it keeps coming up as yeast. Mm-hmm. They could have allergy to Canada foods and inhalants right. and treating them for all of them could be really life changing. So just out of curiosity, let's say we run a blood test on this, like an allergy panel yeah. for these patients, but we also run a uh, Candida IgG, IgM, and IgA. Right, right. If we find IgE, IgA, or IgG elevated, we should think about the systemic interventions, like the chromalin, like the catodophin. The IgE, I only do if we're thinking about... So I don't typically do IgE Candida. I can't see... I can't remember it ever coming back positive. Mm-hmm. That being said, um, there are a couple studies where they did skin prick testing and it was positive. So with Canada, I typically do the IgA, IgG, IgM. And then if those come up positive, what's your thinking? Then I tell the patient that there may be an, a problem with how their body interacts with yeast. And it, I can't tell them if it's an overgrowth or an allergy or both. But let's try treating the overgrowth if they have symptoms. See if they get any better. If they don't and or they seem to respond to therapy, but it keeps coming back, or they have allergic vaginitis, I do often send them to an allergist to get them tested for molds, yeast, inhalants, you know? So it can be super helpful for patients that they're super frustrated, understandably. Because I have a patient right now who has a positive candida immune complex Uh request, who also has a positive, I think she had positive IgA, IgM, and IgG for candida. Yeah. And she's a type 1 diabetic. Oh. And, you know, she's her blood yeah. sugars are controlled. They but, are? I mean, for a diabetic. She's got really good blood pressures for uh, insulin-dependent diabetic. Okay. I just... Okay, I'll let you finish. Well, that. no. I mean, I'm just thinking, do I send her to the allergist? 
I think it would be worth a shot, but for her, I, I suspect she has overgrowth because I did just test a type mm-hmm. 1 diabetes patient that I, I prefer to say a patient with type 1 diabetes mm-hmm. um, who is super well controlled and all of her Canada testing was totally negative. So, here's so I don't thing. think it's an automatic if you have diabetes because we know right. blood sugars are not going to be perfect. So I did put her on my candida okay. protocol, yeah. my fungal protocol, yeah. using drug pharmaceuticals, yeah. using herbs. And off of sugar? And off of sugar. Okay. Uh, I mean, her Refined blood sugar, sugar was pretty well controlled. Okay. So um, she felt worse. Okay. So then, like, that's why I'm thinking, I'm thinking, okay, well, I assumed it was an overgrowth because the immune complex It could be. Elevated. It could be. And she could be having, like, quote unquote, die off, which I don't love the term. But so she could be allergic to candida, uh-huh. which will make her feel more die off symptoms than someone who's not everyone who has a fungal overgrowth is also allergic to yeast and molds. Right. So they won't feel as bad when we're killing this off. But if you think about it, like, if you're treating SIBO and someone's allergic to the bacteria and is right, we're killing bad. things up, you know, it's a double sort of whammy so, of feeling bad. With <laughs> this particular patient, I should, next time I see her, find out if she has some atopic I would symptoms. do a general allergic history. Uh-huh. Yeah. Sinusitis, allergic rhinitis. Do you get rashes? Do you have, does she have big bags under her eyes? Um, does she have a geographic tongue? Mm-hmm. Um allergies any time of the year and then it might be worth sending her for an allergy workup you know but if she has no other allergic symptoms that might be overkill at this point or even just starting with that region 17 panel because i live in oregon you could if she has any signs of allergy you could but so far from what you're telling me it sounds like she's got mostly gut symptoms and type 1 diabetes she has type 1 diabetes she has gi symptoms she's got fatigue so it's so chronic fatigue has also been linked to an allergic predisposition so it could be worth looking into allergy testing, you know? Um, Okay. So overall from this article, I'm just backing up here. So, so overall we have this sort of subgroup of patients with atopic bowel um, that we want to consider figuring out if they have food sensitivities, ideally via elimination challenge diet. And and if they have inhalant allergies via either IgE testing or referring them to an allergist for skin prick testing, And then what do we want to do? So we talked about potential therapies. Of course, we can use all of our mast cell allergy interventions. We can do avoidance strategies. We can do environmental controls, which is part of the treatment section that we're going to do in a couple episodes. Um, Do you ever do histamine, low histamine diet? I cautiously do it. uh, because I don't want to follow. It's hard to follow. Because people are backing themselves into this corner. Yeah. And what I like to do is tell them, like, Ideally, get give me a one or two day diet history, and we'll do some simple swaps. Like instead of ban- bananas, eat blueberries. Instead of spinach, eat kale. Yep. You know, don't let's not just take oh. things out. Don't do bone broth. Do yeah. meat broth. Those are probably my three top strategies yeah. for foods. Um, yeah. So those are that's what I like to do. Instead of removing, is just switching it up, and then. Um, we're going to have a whole treatment episode, so I don't want to spend too much time on that. But we did talk about allergy shots, mast cell medications. Um, and then I have another article or two that I wanted to very briefly touch on in this same realm of like inhalant allergens and atopic bowel. And so we don't know, is, is, is there like an underlying factor that's causing both of them? Does one sort of lead to the other? Is it all from intestinal permeability? We don't have an exact answer to that, but this other article looked more at how like um, actual sensitization to inhalant allergens may be an underlying trigger for both atopic disease and IBS. And we talked about that. So so one potential theory is that inhalant sensitization is causing both phenomenon. There's other potential theories. There might be a genetic predisposition 
to both, which we're going to get to. Um, oh, wait, let me back up before you jump yeah. to that one. So let me repeat what you just said. You yeah. said inhalant allergies might be causing both the atopy and the IBS-like presentation of symptoms. That's one That's one possible theory because we talked about this whole like inhalation of allergens. So that's one possible yeah, reason, yeah. right? The other could be that they've got intestinal permeability for other reasons that leads to both. The other could be, um, I'm going to get to in this last article. So this one looked at... Um, other ways that these two pathologies can interact. And so the two things I wanted to point out, this was interesting. So they did an experimental animal study that showed eosinophilic esophagitis could be induced by intranasal installation of dust mite, aspergillus, and cockroach. (laughs) And so so inhalant allergies in an animal study caused a severe... Were those... Animals. It was an animal study. You said? It was an animal study. Were Don't they... ask too many questions. But did <laughs> but they already have a known allergy to that thing, or was it just random animals? I believe it was random animals. Like I think, so you can sensitize animals to inhale and sure. allergens. Yeah. And so, and too many questions sensitized? again. Too many questions. Okay, because I'm just wondering. <laughs> I this... have to look. I know. Are they already sensitized? Yeah. I don't think they were because. Okay, so they might have sensitized them and then introduced a challenge where they then saw the EOE develop yep. is probably most likely from now that I'm thinking about yeah. it. Because you're right, if it was the first installation, right. I doubt it would cause EOE right away. But right. I thought that was super interesting given the, given the number of people we're seeing with EOE. Right. I mean, yeah, totally. I am seeing a lot more people with so EOE. So there could be inhalation, inhalation allergy with EOE as part we of the pathology. We might need to do an EOE we episode. Should. We do. Yeah, we should. Yeah. yeah. Um, it is interesting. The other one that I found very interesting uh, example they gave in this one study is patients allergic to birch pollen exposure led to local duodenal inflammation with increased eosinophils and IgE carrying mast cells. So just inhaling birch pollen, gut inflammation. Yeah. So basically, I mean, just to just to a yeah. little bit recap what you just did. Yeah. What you just did is you took my normal algorithm that I yep. have been practicing. You've got to switch it up. Yeah, damn you, dude. <laughs> I don't like my brain is not flexible. I like know it used to. I can't keep up. It's too much. I mean, it feels like that a little bit. Like now, I have to think about all of the all of the infectious causes, all of the right. autoimmune causes, right. all of the dietary causes, and now I have to think about inhaled allergies. Okay, I but quit. at least with at least with inhalants, it's a relatively straightforward workup. The, Get the IgE panel. Send okay, them to the for, panel. Okay, if the panel's negative. Send them to the allergist. If the panel's positive and they want to do sublingual immunotherapy or allergy shots, get them in with someone who can do that. Yeah. So it's a relatively straightforward path, but it's then three to five years of therapy, which I think is very worthwhile (laughs) for people with chronic symptoms. We just have to get out of like our fast food mindset of like, I need a, I need a pill now. It's a long-term therapy, 80% efficacy. Do antihistamines work? Okay. I, that's the treatment section, Alana. We're We've got an episode. episode oh, We're not at that episode. See, now, yet. now well, you're like, jets. I mean, like this is the last part for today. So I want to go over a, the last few theories of what is the underlying cause of both atopic disease and IBS. We know there's some sort of immune dysregulation. So one other possibility that we sort of talked about is sort of some sort of mast cell dis- dysregulation that's occurred. That's again leading to both IBS and atopic disease. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one, there could be this. I found very interesting. A genetic link to disruption of the tight junction barrier. Oh. Genetically. Yes. 
they 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 and they were specifically talking about in the bronchial bronchial biopsies and intestinal mucosa. I don't think it's been proven. This is like a theory, but I thought that was pretty yeah. interesting. Um, and then differences in gene expressions of how tight junctions are formed. So kind of along the same lines, mm-hmm. but. Anyway, so there could be this, I often like downplay genetics because we can't do anything about it, but it could be interesting to understand that as far as like explaining to a patient. And what I hear when you say that is there is some kind of like gene that we're going to look when we do their genomics, that's going to be like the A1246A gene where they're like, well, just maybe more there'll atopic. be like a shot that we can give people to correct I mean, CRISPR, the gene expression. CRISPR. I mean, I, I don't understand all that stuff. Families but... do have allergies. Obviously, yeah. allergies you know? run in families. Yeah. Great point, Rebecca. So we know there's genetic links to allergies. IBS, I don't know that I fully thought of that. I like will tell my... you, I usually think of it like, oh, the mom had a waxed microbiome sure. deliver the child. So I think about it from that perspective. But yes, not the a mom genetic also change in the, gave tight the, mom, the child yeah. her genome. Okay, so just overall, so there's we just went through a bunch of studies that showed sort of like this potential link between atopic disease and IBS, and we went through a, a bunch of theories on why that might be. Um, and then if you want to do any conclusions of like, do you want to overall, I think we should recap. Yeah. Yeah. Recap is good. I think in general, the workup you just outlined on how to do it, you know, what we can do in office with people that blood test and then using our local allergists to test people, make friends. Yeah. And obviously do an intake, like on your intake, ask allergy questions. Yep. Definitely. I think that's super important. Yeah. And then I think my take home was. This is yet another cause of chronic GI issues. Unfortunately, yes. Unfortunately, but yes. it is correctable, unlike some other After causes. three to five years with yeah, injections well, on a weekly basis. <laughs> or yes, or sublingual, we'll sublingual immunotherapy works for some. They can do it at home, but you, yeah. Still but we're not allowed years. to talk about treatments because you're not going to discuss any of them no. on We'll this talk episode. about it next yet time. Yet another turd nerds cliffhanger. Yep. Dot, dot, dot. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for we'll tuning in. We'll see you next time. If you like this episode, please subscribe and don't forget to rate and review us to help spread the turd nerd word. Thanks for joining us today. Stay tuned. We release episodes every two weeks.